0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Take a bottle, bottle, or a kettle rather, of water, put it on the stove, turn the burner on high, wait for that kettle of water to begin a boiling. Once it gets boiling real hot, you just go out and find yourself a great big frog Throw the frog in the boiling water and it is an established fact that that frog will immediately hop out of the water and thus save itself. I should tell you that I actually had a YouTube video queued up for you to see what I'm about to describe in process, but I was worried that I would receive some responses from angry parents who have children who were deeply disturbed, and so I decided just to give you a a picture of a cute little frog in a kettle of water. Now you take an altogether different proposal. You take a, a kettle of water, you... Insert the frog in the kettle of water. Nice 67 degree kettle of water. And then you turn the burner on low. And you let it heat up gradually over time. And oh, that old frog. He's in frog heaven. As it gets warmer and warmer. It just kind of reminds him of the frog jacuzzi that he always wanted. But as the water gets warmer and warmer and begins to boil... The frog remains apathetic, and every frog in that scenario will boil to death. The story of the frog in the kettle illustrates the condition of some professing followers of Jesus Christ. In the name of cultural relevance, they hop into the kettle of water and slowly begin the cooking process because they fail to exercise Christian discretion ...and biblical discernment. The Word of God offers a completely different alternative. Rather than dying a slow death like the frog in the cultural kettle... ...Scripture instructs followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to do this. It instructs us to grow spiritually. Last week we learned that elders have a very specific responsibility... ...and you can see this outlined on the screen... Their responsibility is to feed the flock and to lead the flock and to protect the flock. And as we've been learning in Ephesians chapter 4, the reason for this special ministry of feeding, leading, and protecting is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. The template of 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2 also give us a snapshot of how such a ministry that the Word of God proposes and, and gives us, will equip and transform the lives of people. Paul says in 2 Timothy, to the young pastor Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What is the result of such a ministry? The result is a body of Christ that is built up. A church family who is growing, a church family who is strong, a church family who is ministry-minded, a church family who has a desire to reach the community for Christ, a church family who has a desire to reach the nations for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church family who is is grounded in the gospel. One who loves the word of God and loves to apply the truths of scripture to daily life. Paul the Apostle continues his, his discussion, his argument, by pointing out in the passage before us the marks of a maturing church. What are those supernatural signs of a church that is becoming equipped and growing in the grace that God provides. I believe this is a vitally important subject for us today because as you look around at the church of Jesus Christ, especially in America, you will see that many churches are anything but mature. These churches may have massive budgets. They may have ma- a huge staff, multi-staff. They may have sprawling campuses, but these are not indicators of spiritual health many of these churches that you see popping up all over america are a mile wide but only an inch deep you see a church can have literally thousands of members and spearhead multiple ministries in a community they can do all kinds of of ministry in the area and as encouraging as these signs might be these are not accurate benchmarks Of a healthy, vibrant, and growing church. It was in the 16th century that Martin Luther identified a very influential church that was anything but mature. Luther said, See how far the glory of the church has departed. The whole earth is filled with priests, bishops, cardinals, and clergy, yet not one of them preaches so far as his official duty is concerned, unless he is called to do so by a different call over and above his sacramental ordination. In our day, 500 years later, a subtle weakness has slipped into the church. This is a weakness that Oz Guinness identifies as falling for the spirit, the style, the system of the age, which is also a worldliness and an unfaithfulness, Guinness says, that saps the strength of the church and brings that church under the judgment of God. Here at Christ Fellowship, our aim, our humble aim, is to submit to Scripture... And to strive to grow individually and to strive to grow corporately as a church family. That is the reason I've entitled the message this morning, The Marks of Maturity. We want to ask, what are those specific markers? As I've already indicated, it's, it's not the budget. It's not a multiple staff. It's not a massive campus as, as great and as exciting as those things may be. But what are the true markers that's, that are, 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 are signs for us that point to spiritual maturity in the local church family? I want to encourage you to stand to your feet and look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. And we will be studying verses 13 through 16. But I want, once again, to remind you of the context. And so look with me, getting, with me beginning at verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, would you burn it into our minds that the marks of a healthy church have nothing to do with the size of a staff, the size of a church, the size of a budget, the size of a campus, rather the health is found right here in Ephesians chapter 4. So would you, would you etch these four marks of maturity onto our minds and onto our hearts? And God, where change needs to occur, that that would take place today, where repentance needs to take place, we ask that by your Holy Spirit that you, will, you would enable many today to turn and to begin walking in obedience to you. So would you challenge us with this passage? Would you encourage us with this passage God, I pray that you would would stir up your people. Help them to see the, the, the important implications of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The importance of growing strong and healthy, not only individually as a Christ follower, but also as the local church family here at Christ Fellowship. And so we anticipate a great time together as we study the word of God as we are further equipped to live the Christian life. We give you the glory in advance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul describes four essential elements that come as a result of faithful shepherding, the kind of shepherding that we have described over the last couple of weeks. Shepherds who equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I want to have you begin with me in verse 13 and and recognize that there is something that Paul says we need to attain. He literally says, until we all attain. That word attain comes from a Greek word that means to arrive at a particular state. Where exactly do we as as followers of Christ and as members and attenders of Christ's fellowship, where is it that we need to attain? What is it that we need to attain? And so look at these four elements with me. Namely, these four things that we are called to attain. The first thing that we must attain, the first mark of spiritual maturity is spiritual unity. Spiritual unity. Verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith. I want you to think about the two words, standing together. This is exactly what Paul is referring to when he says that the first mark of a spiritually mature church is that we stand together. The word translated unity means this. It means a a spirit of oneness. It means the state of being united. It means to to stand together as one. We began to see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Tuck that verse away in the back of your mind and look at with, with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, where the Apostle Peter says something similar. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I think it would not be an overstatement to say that that we all have a, a basic understanding of what unity means. Unity, you see, can take place in a host of different environments. You think those of you, and especially high school students who are athletes, you understand what it means to be united as a team. You understand what it means to have family unity. And you may even disagree on where you're going to go to dinner and where you're going to go on vacation. But at the end of the day, your family lock arms and you say, we stand united. If you're still in school, you understand what it means to, to be unified as a school. You may agree to disagree on things in your Respective school, but you say we stand united. Now, the unity that we need to experience in the local church is similar but very much more intense than what a team would experience or a school would experience or a family would experience. This is a very specific kind of unity that Paul the Apostle is calling us to embrace. The first mark of maturity here is spiritual unity. And Paul narrows the scope of this unity as he addresses the unity of the faith in particular. You see, it's more than standing together as brothers and sisters. It's more than coming together and locking arms. Rather, there is a unity of the faith. John MacArthur helps us. He says, oneness in fellowship is impossible unless it is built on the foundation of commonly believed truth here's what macarthur is indicating he is trying to tell us that theology matters i have had so many conversations over the years where at the end of the day in a nutshell basically the sentiment i hear is oh theology doesn't matter let's just get along But theology does matter. This is one of the reasons I encourage college students, or anyone for that matter, when they think about attending a new church. And so we have some young people that will be moving away in the fall or at the end of the summer, and they will be looking for a new church. And so I encourage them to make sure that they examine the doctrinal statement of the church even before they attend that church. I don't know how many times I've heard from someone who attended a church for the first time say something like this. Oh, it was such a wonderful experience. Oh, I love the worship. Oh, I love the donuts. They bought the expensive donuts at that church. And oh, and the coffee was so wonderful. And they have new facilities. And oh, people were so friendly. And the sermon was really short. Oh man, everything was perfect. And then they'll begin to attend. On a weekly basis. And then one day, either the pastor says something, or an elder says something, or someone in a small group says something, or they hear something in, in a Bible class or a Sunday school class, or they go to read the doctrinal statement and they realize that this church embraces something that is altogether different from Scripture. And you say, How could it be? The worship made me feel so good. The pastor's sermon was so short. The cookies were so great. The donuts tasted so good. But this church is a doctrinally deficient or a doctrinally weak church. We need to understand that the first mark of spiritual maturity is spiritual unity. That is unity of the faith. I need to add, to be fair, that not everyone thinks in this way. It was at a conference on April 26, 2018, just a few days ago. A pastor who you're very familiar with, I'm sure, Andy Stanley, told 8,000 participants, quote, Church unity is more important than theological correctness, close quote. Church unity is more important than theological correctness, he said. And let me remind you that our unity is not only distinctly Christian, It is not a unified conviction. We are not together if we are not theologically correct. That is to say, if someone rejects the doctrine of the Trinity, we are not united spiritually. If someone rejects the deity of Christ, we cannot stand united. If you reject salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, we cannot stand united. It was J.C. Ryle that said, unity is a mighty blessing, but it is worthless if it is purchased at the cost of truth. The first mark of maturity, real maturity, is spiritual unity, what Paul refers to as the unity of the faith. I want you to look with me at the second mark that is also found in verse 13. It's what we refer to as spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding. Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Mark that word knowledge, if you will, in your Bible. And let's consider that for a moment. Consider a few aspects of this knowledge. First, Paul refers to... The word that is translated as knowledge, it comes from the Greek word epigenosis, a term that refers to spiritual knowledge in particular. This is not 2 plus 2 equals 4 knowledge. This is not theory of relativity knowledge. This is spiritual knowledge. It's so much more than the knowledge that you merely store in your head. This is a a precise and a correct and an accurate knowledge of God's Word that begins, listen, in your head that transfers to your heart that results in life transformation in your, your hands and your feet. Paul said it like this in Colossians 1, 9 and 10. And so from this day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul continues later in Colossians 3. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so the Bible places an emphasis on knowledge, on a precise and an accurate and a correct knowledge of the things on the word of God. But we need to go further. Notice that this knowledge has an object In verse 13, Paul says that the object of this knowledge is the Son of God. This knowledge that we strive to know and embrace and internalize is uniquely Christian because its object is none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This being the case, may I submit this to you, that we, for the rest of our days, that we strive to, To not only know about Christ, but that we strive to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That we gain a deeper understanding of the, the crucial doctrines that concern Jesus. Doctrines like the virgin birth, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, and the impeccability of Christ. We strive to understand and embrace that Jesus Christ is fully God. We also strive to understand and embrace that Jesus Christ is fully man. We gain an understanding of His offices, that He is prophet, priest, and king. We understand, we gain an understanding of of Christ's atoning sacrifice. And we learn how to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in all His glory. Some of you, as I mentioned these doctrines, know very little about these doctrines that concern Jesus. Your challenge as you move forward is to begin to understand them. Don't feel bad if you've never heard of them. Don't feel bad if you've heard of them, but don't understand what they mean. Rather, the challenge is for you to grow in these doctrines. Others of you, the the great veterans of the Christian faith, you would say... That you have a solid understanding of these doctrines concerning Jesus Christ. Yet, isn't there always something else to learn? There's always something else to learn. The more I study, the more I read, the more I know, I realize I don't know very much. And so there's always something to learn. It doesn't matter if you're nine years old or 90 years of age. There's always something more to learn in Scripture. But we not only learn about Christ, we grow in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. In one of his most articulate books, a book that has deeply impacted me by Jonathan Edwards, the title of the book is Religious Affections. And the line that strikes me the most is as follows. Edward says, If the great things of the Christian faith are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. If we understand these great doctrines concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, it will go straight to our heart. And when it goes straight to our heart, it results in life transformation. And so may I challenge you. This morning to think about where you are in relation to spiritual understanding. And there's a way to gauge where you stand today. Would you say that your knowledge of the Son of God is steadily increasing? Or is it possible that you have grown stagnant? Would you say that your desire to learn is on the rise? Or are you content to rest on your laurels? As Dreen and I took a walk just last night. I was sharing with her some of what I would preach today and the thought crossed my mind that many Christians, especially Western Christians, one of the biggest obstacles to growing in the Christian faith is the television. Is the television. Now, I love a good television show and I love a good ball game and I love a good golf match. But there comes time in the life of every Christian where we have to shut off the TV. We have to shut off the computer. We have to shut off the video game. And we have to open our Bibles and grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and rev up your desire to learn. Make it a goal to continually grow in your knowledge of the Son of God. Make it a goal to to raise the bar of spiritual understanding. Which leads us to the next mark of spiritual maturity. It's found in verse 14 and what I like to refer to as spiritual stability. We have spiritual unity, we have spiritual knowledge, and in verse 14 we have spiritual stability. There are two words that come from a, a, a little Greek word. It's the word hina. Greek scholars have to this as the Hena Clause. And whenever you run into a Hena Clause, it's a so that. It's a purpose statement. And so Paul says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I want to have you mark two very important concepts in verse 14. The first is a phrase that will lift right out of verse 14. That is mature manhood. The word mature comes from the Greek word teleos, which means mature development. It means one who has become complete. You would say it like this in the modern vernacular. You have arrived. You have reached the pinnacle. It describes someone who is full grown. And the young people appreciate this. It describes someone who has grown from a little boy into a man. It describes a person that grows from a boy to a man. This person has reached full maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Paul says. The fullness and abundance of God is the dominating factor in this person's life. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews gives us a a better example here of what this kind of maturity actually looks like. He says this in Hebrews 5.14, But solid food is for the mature. That's the same word that occurs in Ephesians 4.14. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Which suggests this, an indicator, if you're trying to figure out and and do an assessment on your life this morning, and I would encourage you to do that, an indicator of this level of spiritual maturity is exercising discernment. Discernment means this, you have the ability to judge well. It's the last thing Western Christians want to hear. It's that we're judge. It gets us every time. Well, I don't want to judge anyone. Here's what the Bible says. Judge everything. We're to discern everything. The ability to judge well. So, for instance, if you're a sports fan... You you watch the quarterback move from the, the group of individuals in the huddle, and he walks to the line of scrimmage. He lowers his knees, and he says, 422, 422, 422! And what does he do? He looks at the defense, and he says, 322, blue, 322, blue, side, hut. What happened? He changed the play at the line of scrimmage. They had the perfect play. But he noticed he noticed what the middle linebackers were going to do. They were set up in a way that he had not anticipated, that the coaches didn't anticipate. And so at the line of scrimmage, he changes the play. Why? Because he was exercising discernment. Or, if you're not a football fan, have you ever been on a plane, and you're you're cruising along at 30,000 feet, and you're enjoying your Diet Coke, and you're reading your, your magazine, and you're looking out, and all of a sudden, the pilot does. Right? And everything spills. And you say, what in the world happened? And then about two minutes later, the pilot comes on the overhead sound system and says, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so sorry for the horrible turn a few minutes ago, but we realized that we're headed straight for a storm. And so we had to make an adjustment. What was the pilot doing? The pilot was exercising biblical discernment. Or not biblical discernment, but physical discernment. (laughs) Yeah, we wish he was exercising biblical discernment. My friend Tim Challies puts it like this. He says, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's Word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Several years ago, I did my best to, to, to... Illustrate what biblical discernment looks like. I had one of my friends come forward, and I almost got in trouble doing this, or I would do it again today. <laughs> and I asked my friend if he was thirsty, and he said, as a matter of fact, I am thirsty. And I had, you know, that blue Gatorade? In my it's the best Gatorade. It's just wonderful. Blue raspberry. Oh, man, it's wonderful. And I said, man, it's cold. And he felt it, and it was cold. And I said, it's yours for the taking. And he twisted off the cap, and he went, and I said, stop, Ron." And he said, what? And I said, did you smell that liquid refreshment? He said, actually, no, I didn't. I said, would you smell it before you drink it? Be discerning. And he went to smell it, and he he took it away from his nose. Well, I had thrown out the heavenly blue raspberry Gatorade and replaced it with Windex. I said, Ron, Ron, you need to exercise discernment you need to look you need to feel you need to analyze you need to ask do I want to ingest that into my life and so a discerning person makes judgments and as I mentioned earlier making a judgment call on anything in our culture is automatically controversial but the word of God demands that you and I make judgments a discerning person ultimately appeals to our highest standard, our highest authority, and that is God's Word. A discerning person assumes that there is a right way and there is a wrong way. Solomon prayed for the ability to discern good from evil. He said in First Kings 3, "Give." and this is a prayer request, by the way. He said, Give your servant... An understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold... I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So we see that that God values a person who prays to exercise biblical discernment. Notice also in verse 14 the idea of sound doctrine. We see once again a purpose. The purpose here is that we need to be mature in the faith so that we will no longer be considered as children. This Greek word translated child literally means infantile. It means infantile. And so our lives are to be governed by sound doctrine. Do you realize that that everyone embraces a set of doctrinal presuppositions. Have you ever talked to someone who says, I'm not interested in doctrine? You know, I used to like to kind of jump on people that said that when I was a a newer Christian, getting involved in the ministry. Now when they say, I don't like doctrine, I just smile and say, did you know that that is a doctrine? For the person who says, I don't like theology, that person embraces a theology. And it's bad theology. Everyone believes in doctrine. Some people embrace doctrine that does not line up with Scripture. Paul is calling us to believe in sound doctrine. Verse 14. Since we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes... Why are these people tossed about by the waves and the wind of false teaching? They are not spiritually stable. They lack a solid biblical and doctrinal framework. Now, before we move past verse 14, I want you to see quickly the three terms that describe this kind of false teaching. Paul says, first, human cunning. It comes from a Greek word that means dice playing. I just had to tell you that. I mean, a Baptist preacher in a Baptist church, that means dice playing. Or craftiness, that's a word that means deceitfulness or deceitful schemes. That means someone who leads people astray. What is it that people who are lacking in this area of stability, what do they need? You know, I've been preaching now for Over 26 years. And do you know it's the first time in all of those years that I've preached without shoes on? It was so funny to watch all your eyes go, honey, he doesn't have shoes on. And it's felt really weird. I, I, I feel very, especially with Arlen here, looking like a million bucks. I feel extremely underdressed. And those are very shiny shoes. What is it that the person who is not stable, what do they need? Well, they need a pair of shoes. And so I decided to illustrate this. I would bring my golf shoes. Because what do golf shoes have on them but spikes? And that's exactly what we need in the Christian life. We need to, first of all, take the time to put on a decent pair of shoes, and we need to put on a decent pair of shoes that are stable shoes. And these stable shoes need to hold us when the, when the waves of false teaching come crashing at us. And so when someone says, I don't believe in the deity of Christ, what do we do? Instead of blowing over, we say, the word of God says, not I believe, but the word of God says, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. When someone comes along and says, I don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, You say, not I believe, but you say, the Word of God says that God is one. And this one God reveals Himself in three persons. When someone says, I don't believe that Jesus Christ is going to return for His people, you say, the Word of God says He promises He will return for His people. And so you remain strong, you remain steadfast, you are stable. Why do golfers wear these goofy shoes with spikes to keep them stable? But you know, it's not the only thing a golfer needs. A golfer needs a good glove. And my son and I think the Nike gloves are the best, right? And so you put on your Nike glove. And I want to be careful with this illustration. Why does a golfer wear a glove to have a good grip on his golf club? In this case, the driver. And here's where I need to be careful. I want to ask you today, is there some area in your life that you need to be stabilized doctrinally? And where I really need to be careful is this, because some of you need to get a grip. Are you with me? There are believers who who need to put on their theological golf club. They need to get a grip. That is to say, they need to begin to understand what the Word of God says about doctrine. And so have you put on your golf shoes for the Christian journey? Are you a spiritually stable person? How do you determine whether or not you're spiritually stable? Are you growing in your ability to exercise biblical discernment? And so I want to encourage you to move in the direction of spiritual stability so that you can get a grip, so that you can stand strong when the the wind and the waves of false teaching threaten to to throw you on your feet. Here are the three commitments I want to encourage you to embrace. And these are practical things. First, education. 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 Turn with me to Psalm chapter 119. Psalm chapter 119. And while you're turning, I know what some of you are thinking. When I walked out of my high school graduation, I said that was the end. No more education. And as a Christian, nothing could be further from the truth. Psalm chapter 119, beginning of verse 15. The psalmist said, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. You see, spiritual stability requires the faithful intake of God's word. Wayne Mack says... If you want to have a strong faith, you must put yourself in a place where you will hear the word of God being faithfully preached. Faith doesn't just float around in the air and mysteriously grab you. God uses his preached word to strengthen your faith. And so when you make a commitment to be educated theologically, you place yourself under the ministry of the word of God. When you sit under the ministry of the word of God, you allow the Holy Spirit to do a mighty work of grace in your life. The last few days I have been reading a book by Jason Meyer who is the pastor who took over John Piper's pulpit at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The name of the book is Lloyd Jones on the Christian life. Now, if you're not familiar with Lloyd Jones, many people consider Martin Lloyd Jones the the last of the Puritans. I know I do. He was a pastor who was born in Wales, came to know Christ at an early age, was a a physician to the the elite people in London. And when he was 24 or 25, he trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. And he realized that he needed to move from being a physician to being a pastor. He went back to Wales and pastored for several years, and then God brought him back to London where he would serve the remainder of his days. Lloyd-Jones says this, He says, The Spirit works in the heart so that it is open and humbly ready to receive from God, not closed and arrogantly arrogantly ready to question God. He says, This work of the Spirit in the heart puts us in a position of submission that overcomes our native rebellion. Pride would put us in opposition to God, contending for supremacy. Humility puts us under God and his word ready to receive grace this is the power of solid theological education secondly i want to encourage you with examination examination that is examine everything through the lens of sacred scripture Paul says in Colossians 2, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Finally, exaltation. Exodus 15, 2 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Here's what you will find as you are educated in the things of God's Word, as you examine everything you come in contact with according to God's Word, and as you exalt the living God, you will find this. You are on the fast track to spiritual growth. You will find that these new gospel shoes will enable your will, enable your mind, enable your affections. And when someone comes and says something that's contrary to Scripture, you stand like a mighty oak tree. There's a final thing I would commend to you that's found in verses 15 and 16, and we'll do this quickly, and that is spiritual influence. This is the the final characteristic or the mark of spiritual maturity. Paul says, Rather than speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here Paul says, We are to be speaking the truth in love. And this final mark of spiritual maturity demands a church who has the guts who has the backbone to proclaim the message of the gospel in our culture. This is a church that speaks the truth in love. And so being a person of spiritual influence requires growth. Paul instructs the believers in so many words here, to grow up comes from a a word that means to grow larger and larger and larger. That's what we're called to do. And so every aspect of our Christian growth, please remember, is owing to the grace of God found in Christ. God gets the credit for the growth. God gets the glory for the growth. And Peter the Apostle uses the same word for grow up in 2 Peter 3.18. He says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and now And to the day of eternity. Some of you will remember. He's one of my favorite former college football coaches. The coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. By the way, everyone knows what the N stands for on the Nebraska helmet. Knowledge. You are a very discerning congregation. Tom Osborne Began the 1997 season with some very specific goals. He had eight goals. I want to give you four of them. Number one, we will be national champions. Number two, be the most physically and mentally prepared team in the country. Number three, (laughs) this will crack the athletes in the first two rows up. Grade grade point average for the team, 285 I would say maybe his standard needs to go up just a little bit, even though that was my GPA in high school. Number four, (laughs) just keeping it real, an undefeated season. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have some goals as well. Scripture says that there are some things that we need to attain. Verse 13, the marks of maturity are spiritual unity spiritual understanding, spiritual stability, and spiritual influence. These are the marks of maturity that should be evidence in the life of our church. But these are also marks of maturity that should be seen in my life and your life as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the man I referred to earlier, warned the church in the 20th century about the danger of divorcing doctrine from everyday life, and he did it throughout the the whole of his ministry. Listen to his words carefully, and we'll close. He says, If we go astray in our doctrine, eventually our life will go astray as well. You cannot separate what a man believes from what he is. For this reason, doctrine is vitally important. Certain people say ignorantly, I do not believe in doctrine, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am saved, I am a Christian, and nothing else matters. Listen to Lloyd-Jones' response. To speak in that way is to court disaster. And for this reason, the New Testament itself warns us against this very danger. We are to guard ourselves against being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. For if your doctrine goes astray, your life will soon suffer as well. May each of us bear the marks of spiritual maturity. May our lives be characterized by unity, by understanding, by stability. And finally, by spiritual influence. May God alone be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, thank you for challenging us with this passage. God, I ask that you would enable us by your grace and by the power of your spirit to be a people committed to spiritual unity. A people who are absolutely committed to spiritual understanding. A people who are committed to spiritual stability and finally a people who are committed to spiritual influence. May we make a difference here, right here in Whatcom County where you have placed us. God, I pray that all the excuses would go away. I pray that, that all of the, the things that we try to, to get out of working a little harder, all those excuses would go away, that we would be people of the book that we would be willing to turn off the television, we would be willing to turn off the game, that we would be willing to, to walk away from some trivial activity so that we would grow strong and stable in the Christian life. Help us, God, daily to put on our golf shoes so that we would be stable, to put on our golf glove so that we would get a grip, so that we would continue the process of growing in grace. So, God, would you encourage this flock today? Would you encourage them? Would you build them up? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.